Take your Bibles and turn back to Hebrews chapter 5. Okay, let's say this afternoon you get on an airplane in San Louis and you decide to fly to Los Angeles. That's where you're going. And you're getting comfortable in your seat and, uh, and the, over the loudspeaker comes about an hour later this recording. It says, this is a recording. You have the privilege of being on the first holy electronically controlled jet. The first AI jet. Okay. The plane took off electronically. It's now flying 40,000 feet electronically. It will land in Los Angeles electronically. This plane has no pilot. It has no co-pilot. It has no flight engineer because they're no longer needed. But do not worry. Nothing can possibly go wrong. Go wrong. Go wrong. Go wrong. Go wrong. Wow. You know what? Um, this Hebrew is, is a reminder of something that has drastically gone wrong with the human race. And we don't have to do much more than turn on the news to know that, right? There's something drastically wrong with people. There's something drastically wrong with our world. But the book of Hebrews is here to tell us there's someone who's come to fix it. And that, that is through Jesus Christ himself. And he's come to fix it through a number of his ministries. We started, talked about that on the cross. He died for us. He resurrected from the dead. He now lives at the right hand of the Father, has ascended to him. But we also are talking about another thing, something essential to your Christian life, your Christian walk, your salvation. Something not mentioned in any other book in all the Bible, strange as that may be, and that is the high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's absolutely essential uh, for you to live for him and for you to even be saved. Our, our author has already hinted at this, flirted with this subject before. If you look at chapter 2, verse 17, very quickly, he tells us that Christ is our merciful and faithful high priest. That is the first mention of this in the Bible. And then secondly, we have in chapter 3, verse 1, Christ is the high priest of our confession. And then in chapter 4, verse 14, he tells us that Christ is our great high priest. And then finally, verses 15 and 16 of chapter 4, he tells us that this great high priest is ministering so that we can draw near to God. So by verse 15 and 16, we're ready to deal, the author is ready to deal with this ministry of the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. But before he launches into his discussion, uh, and he seems to have a hard time getting there. He wants to talk about this high priestly ministry, but he just doesn't seem to be able to fully launch into that. As a matter of fact, starting with chapter 5, verse 11 next week, he's going to go off on a tangent that will go to the very end of chapter 6. He will not get back to to the real details of this ministry of Christ till chapter 7. And so so he's going to go off on that. And then he comes to chapter 6, verse 20, and it's almost like he's saying in that verse, now wait a minute, I've been been wanting to get to this thing about the ministry of Christ as as our high priest. Where was I at? Let me get back to that. And now he finally gets into it in chapter 7. He moves on in greater detail. But for now, as we go back to chapter 5, We're looking at this high priestly ministry of Christ. It's already been mentioned, like I said, four times previously. Uh, Now he needs to talk to us about a couple of subjects that's related to that that are very pertinent to us. We start off with the qualifications of a high priest in the Old Testament. And that covers the first four verses of that. In the Old Testament, there was this high priesthood. 
There was three qualifications that we find here in our text to be a high priest. Number one, he had to be a man. In verse one, every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. Angels could not be our high priest. People who are deceased, who have gone on, uh, are saints in heaven, they cannot be our high priest. It had to be a human being, a flesh and blood, a live human being to be our high priest at that time. So he's, he's, and because he's doing that because he's appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God. In other words, he's our representative. He's our go-between between us and God. And he's also the go-between between God and us. So think of a, of a real estate agent who is working for both sides, both the, uh, the buyer and the seller. He's a representative for both of them, and therefore we have this, this representative. But Christ is, uh, is that, for, or the high priest was that in the Old Testament. They represented us before God. They represented God to people. So that was his role at that time. But he had one more thing that we don't want to miss. I mentioned it in the communion. And that is he was, his major ministry had to do with the sacrifices for sins. So he wasn't simply someone who was a great teacher or, or a wonderful uh, example. He was a one who draw, drew us to the sacrifices necessary for salvation. So that's the first thing. He had to be a man and sacrifice is on the table. Secondly, the high priest must be appointed by God. In verse 1 it says there that... It, and for every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. Verse 4, no one takes his honor to himself but receives it when he's called by God as Aaron was. And so this is not a self-appointment. Nobody elected high priests. Nobody had a, had a primary and a runoff. Nobody took polls to see who was the more, most popular of the priests. And they'd pick that person as a high priest. Uh, Aaron was called by God, appointed by God, and all the high priests after that were to be appointed by God. Now, thirdly, and this all comes from the first two, and this is where it really gets exciting, I think, the high priest must be able to deal gently with sinners. He must be able to deal gently with sinners. Verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided since he himself is also beset with weaknesses. The word beset means to be engulfed in. And he says this, that this high priest was engulfed in. He, part of his DNA was weaknesses. Uh, he was depraved. He was sinful. He had failures. So the high priest is a mortal man, a human being, who is sinful, who had his own sins to deal with as well as the sins of the people. He knew what it was to battle temptation. He knew what it was to, to lose out at times to sin. He knew what it was to have the need to confess his sins and repent of his sins before God. He was a weak person. Now what a qualification set we have in verse 2. As a pastor, I have done many references for people who want to get a job and they need a reference from their pastor for whatever reason. Or they want to be a missionary or a pastor and they're asking me for a reference. And I've gotten a lot of reference forms that I've filled out for people. I've never gotten a reference form from a ministry or an employer that said, we want you, or here's what we're looking for in our person. We're looking for somebody who's ignorant, <laughs> misguided, and weak. Could you imagine that being what the, the employer wants? 
our ministry was. We want somebody who's stupid, who doesn't know which way's up, and really has no strength in himself at all. Wouldn't that be a cool group of people to have? I mean, some of you say, well, hey, I could do that. I could qualify for that. What, what an odd set of qualifications. Now, the high priest had other qualifications, requirements, but, uh, but these were three that they, they had. Because it goes on to say in verse 2 that they had the same weaknesses as the people did. So the high priest is going to be dealing with a group of people that were ignorant of the things of God. They were misguided. They didn't know what direction to go. And they're weak in their spiritual lives. And the high priest was too. And he needed to be that way. You see, he wasn't going to be dealing with all a bunch of spiritual giants. Uh, he's going to be dealing with people that struggled. And maybe you identify with this. They struggled with understanding and applying the truth of God's word to their life. They tended to wander away from God every chance they got. They were easily duped and led astray. They often sinned. They tended to become cold at times towards the things of God. Was at times swept away in a moment of impulse or anger or passion to go a direction they shouldn't go. You know, if, if I could do an application of this passage of Scripture to our present-day circumstance and uh, move from a high priest to a pastor, I think many a pastor is discouraged as they minister ch- in their churches because within their congregation are people like this, ignorant, misguided, and weak. The church is always filled with those people as they were in the past. Some better than others, but there's always those people. And as the pastor looks at that, I think a lot of young pastors go into the ministry thinking, I'm going to go to this church and they're just going to lap up everything I'm going to give them. And they're just going to grow like a weed. And within a few years, I'm going to have this perfect church. You know what the statistics tell us? Every four years, statistically across all denominational platforms, pastors leave. Why? Because the studies have shown that most problems, big problems, start the third year he's there. You see, in the third year, he finds out they're not all perfect. And when that front they had shown him at first are starting to melt down, and they find out he isn't either. And when the two hit, the fourth year he moves on. Now, why does he move on? He moves on because he thinks there's another church down the road that's so much better. And he goes there for four years. And he moves on again. That statistically tells us what's happening. I never moved on because I knew you guys were as dumb as anybody else. You know, you, you were as misguided as the next group. You know, you were as weak as the next. And before you walk away with bad ideas, so am I. You know, you might say, Pastor, if you knew how sinful I was, you wouldn't let me come to this church. If you knew how sinful I was, you wouldn't come. Okay? We're all in the same boat. Now, we're in different places. By God's grace, we're growing. Hopefully, as you're not the same person you was a few, uh, a few years ago. You're growing in Christ. Though we're all have a feet of clay. We're all flesh. We all have our weaknesses. And so the Lord chose a man who would come into a church to, a, to, the, to be a high priest over his people, just as pastors are today, to come in to deal with people that are far from perfected. And we need each other so badly. Go back to verse 13 of chapter 3. Notice what he said earlier. 
and he'll come back to this more than once, chapter 13, verse 3, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, how desperately weak people need others to strengthen them. How desperately we all need to be looking around at people we can strengthen and help who are, uh, before they get hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's what the body of Christ is about. The high priest led the way in the Old Testament. Elders in the church today lead the way in the church. But we still are battling these things. Somebody has said, we, we sang the song, we're marching to Zion. But most of us are limping most of the time. Remember Jacob, he encountered God in the Old Testament. And when he got done encountering God, God t- touched his, his thigh and his hip went out of joint and he limped for the rest of his life, reminding him that he was a limper. He was somebody who, who was flawed and that God himself had encountered a flawed man and was going to use a flawed man. God picked the high priest out of the same pool of sinners that all the people were in. And he picked that high priest because he wanted that man to minister to people that were sinful. He wanted sheep to lead sheep, just like he does today. But why? You say, well, why, why would he do that? Why wouldn't he have this subset of super saints who could uh, be so much above the rest of us that they could kind of set in their ivory towers and pour down on us the truth and all the insights that they have, and they're not like us. Why did he bring into our leadership from the beginning to now sinful, weak, troubled people? Why? Well, he says, tells us why in this verse, in order that they could deal gently with those to whom they minister. The word gentle there speaks of compassion and tenderness, but it also has the idea of strength. It's a, it's a word that speaks of strength. He's not a pushover. He's not looking the other way at sin. The position is balanced. He knows their sin. He knows their sinners. He deals with that as appropriate, but he does so, it says, with tenderness and kindness and compassion and gentleness because he too knows his own weaknesses. That's why the Lord chose such people. You know, some of you probably grew up with a, in a situation where your, your parents were not kind. You hear all the time about someone who had a, a father or a mother or both that were bullies. They were, they were abusive. They are, or they simply ignored you. And you didn't want to go to them because that's what they were like. And sometimes we, we project that over to Christ and to the Lord himself. And, and, but the, the truth of the matter is, that according to Scripture, we never come to him and find him a bully. We never come to him and find him indifferent. We never come to him and find him harsh. We come to him and we find him gentle and lowly of heart, as he t- says concerning himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine, And he invites us to come to him because he is gentle and lowly of heart and he cares for us and he wants us to come before him. Go on to verse 3 now. One more thought here before we move away from the Old Testament. The high priest ministry was focused on one other thing, and that is the forgiveness of sins. In verse 3 he says this, And because of it he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. His job his, his, was laser focused on the issue of sin and forgiveness. 
He was not just a good example. He was not just an excellent teacher or a good biblical counselor. He could be those things, but his main ministry was to guide his people to forgiveness because what they need, what you need, what I need, is forgiveness of sin. We don't come before him with a perfect plate. We come to him with sin because he will forgive us of our sins when we confess those sins before him. That's what the high priest did. That's what we do today. Forgiveness, how important that is. Forgiveness among ourselves. I, Marcia and I visited an older couple that I grew up with around some years ago. We visited them. We were in town before my mother passed away. And went down the street to visit this, this guy. Her name was Alice. She had a husband named Jim. I hardly ever saw Jim growing up. But, but we went in the house to say hi. They were well up in years. And uh, we, we sat down for a little bit. And Jim came out of the back room. And we began to talk about their life. I grew up with their kids. And uh, they said, oh, all of our kids have been divorced several times. It's a mess. And then a Jim said, that's, what, that's the problem with young people today. By the way, that's what old people have to say. <laughs> that's the problem with this generation. You know, we're not like us. They, they, get, they run into problems and they get divorced. He said, well, look at us, he said. Me and my wife, we hate each other. <laughs> we hate each other. We never talk. We don't like each other. We don't forgive each other. She sits in the living room and watches TV. I sit in the back room and watch TV. We're not like the kids today. Whoa. Was that a big improvement? Something went astray in that marriage somewhere along the line. Nobody gets married to, to, to live in separate rooms. Nobody gets married to, to, to be a, a hateful to one another. Something went wrong years ago, and forgiveness was never found. And they drew further and further and further apart as a result of that. And today they could probably never even tell you what, what troubled them to begin with. They simply don't like you. They hate each other. No forgiveness. Ernest Hemingway wrote a story once of a, of a man in, in Spain who sent a, a letter to his son. His son had ran away from home. His name was Paco. He had ran away from home, and the father finally got over his anger and wanted his son to return. Didn't know where he was. He knew he was somewhere in Madrid, and that's all he knew. So he took out an ad in the local newspaper there in Madrid, and the ad said this, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, noon, Tuesday, all is forgiven, Papa. The next day, on that next Tuesday, the father shows up at the square there, and 800 young men named Paco showed up. Now, that's, of course, a fictional story by Hemingway, but I think Hemingway, if you know anything about him, struggled all of his life with his own depravity, his own lack of forgiveness from others, and, from, and he had no forgiveness from God. What is the greatest need you and I have? Forgiveness from Almighty God. And that's what the high priest, that's what his ministry was all about. But that leads us directly into... The next thing is, does Christ himself meet the qualifications of a high priest? Well, let's take a look. In verse 5, we find, first of all, that he was a man. It says, so also Christ did not glorify himself, so as to become a high priest. But he has said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten thee. At, according from Psalm 2-7, at the very least, we see that Christ was a man. He's the God-man, but he is a man. Secondly, he was a high priest appointed by God. 
In verse 5 he says, So also Christ did not glorify himself. The Father said, You are my Son. I have begotten you. Verse, verse 10, Being designated by God as a high priest. Christ did not appoint himself. He was appointed by the Father. But now, right here in this verse 10, actually going back to verse 6, something really strange happens. A fellow by the name of Melchizedek shows up. Who in the world is Melchizedek and how did he get in our story? This is a strange thing. I would say that the average Christian in America could not tell you who Melchizedek is. And yet, according to the book of Hebrews, understanding who he is and Christ's ministry in the order of Melchizedek is essential to your salvation. What a, what a thing. No other book in the New Testament mentions Melchizedek. He's only mentioned twice prior to this. He's mentioned in Genesis chapter 14. And there in those verses, verses 18 to 20, Abraham comes back from a great victory over some uh, bad kings, four or five bad kings. Melchizedek comes out and blesses him. Abraham tithes to him. And he fades away from the history of Scripture forever. Except in Psalm 110, one verse of Scripture, verse 4, that is quoted right here, we find that Christ is going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Then he's gone again. I want you to think about this. Abraham lived in the year 2000 B.C., approximately. The Psalms are written about a thousand years before Christ. For, 2000, for a thousand years, nobody ever heard of him. For another thousand years, nobody ever heard of him. He's not mentioned in the Gospels. He's not mentioned in the Epistles. He's not mentioned in Acts. He's not mentioned in Revelation. He's only mentioned here. And then he becomes a central figure of the priesthood and the ministry of Jesus Christ. What a strange, strange thing that is here. Why is Jesus a priest after the order of Melchizedek? Because we've got a problem. You may not know this problem unless you know the Old Testament, but these people who were receiving this letter were Jewish Christians, and they knew their Old Testament, and they knew the high, the, the high priest had to be from the lineage of Aaron, and all the priests had to come from the tribe of Levi. But Jesus came from the lineage of David, and he was from the tribe of Judah. Therefore, Jesus could not be our high priest. He did not meet the qualifications. There's the problem. What are we going to do about that? Jesus doesn't fit. It would be like if this year the Gillies were going to have a family reunion. And by the way, we've never had a family reunion. I don't think we even like each other. I don't even think I know where they are, you know. So, so we've never had one. But let's say we had one this year. Finally, the Gillies get together. And we're going to, we're going to choose a King Gilly. A Gilly over all the Gillies. A Gilly to rule all the Gillies. He'll have a ring to rule over all the... Never mind. Uh, and elected was Joe Smith. What? Joe Smith is not a Gilly. How can he be our king? It's impossible. He's not a gilly. 
We can't do this. That's exactly what the Jews were thinking right here. Jesus cannot be our high priest. He is not from the tribe of Levi. He is not from the lineage of Aaron. How in the world can that happen? Well, because he's going to go back not to the Levitical priesthood, but to the Melchizedekian priesthood, and he is going to follow that order. It's going to be a different priesthood. Why? Hang in there to chapter 7, and I'll tell you. Maybe chapter 8. It gets much more intense, but he doesn't go on with that here. And so I'm not going to go on with it. I trust before we get done with Hebrews, if you're still alive, that you understand the vast importance of this whole thing. But right right here, there is one word that sticks out now. And that is the word in verse 6, forever. Forever. He is all, in another passage, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now here's what we knew about the Old Testament priesthood. The priest died. And when they died, another priest replaced them. And some of those priests were pretty good, like Aaron. Some were not so good. Remember the high priest who, who murdered Jesus? Caiaphas and Annas? These are high priests, murderers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there was a real difference between the different high priests going throughout the history. But now we have one who will be a high priest forever. With a change of the high priesthood, there would be a change of administration and sometimes a whole shift, spiritually speaking, among the, and sometimes politically, among the people of Israel. We know something about that in America. Every four years, we elect a new president. And with that new president, we have a new administration. Now, sometimes the president gets two terms, but that's the most we get. And what, what do we get? We get whipsawed, don't we? We have a liberal president, sets up all these policies. Conservative president changes them all. The liberal president comes back, changes all those. Back and forth we go, back and forth we go. And we're used to it. We don't like it, but we're used to it. What if we could have a a president of America who lived forever and was always in place? Wouldn't that be wonderful? And you're saying, depending upon. (laughs) I see some heads out there. Depending upon... Who he is. But the best of the best of the best is still a flawed, weak, ignorant sinner. But what if he was Christ? What if he was the king and ruled over all things forever? Guess what? The Bible says he will. Isn't that great? That's coming. Right now, we're waiting. But right now, he still is our great high priest. Okay. The high priest had to deal gently with sinners. Okay, okay, but Jesus was not a sinner. He was not weak, so how can he deal gently with me? He doesn't understand me. He doesn't get how weak I am. He's a God-man. Can he understand my temptations? Can he understand my failures? Can he understand my hurt, my sorrow, my disappointment with life? Can Jesus, the God-man, understand that? Well, the argument of the book is yes. And here's why. Follow along with me, starting with verse 7. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. What was the greatest trial that Jesus ever faced? Was it when the people of Israel rejected him? 
Was it at the cross when he died in our place? The passage here says there's another time even worse. The day before the crucifixion, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Savior of the universe stood, kneeled before his Father and cried out with loud cries and tears, Spare me, my Father, from this horrible thing of physical and spiritual death and torture. Spare me of these things. And he cried out, according to this, to the Father. And the Father heard him. All right, with me so far? Good. But did the Father answer him with a yes? No. The Father denied his requests. The Father said no to the Son. You will go to the cross. And it says he was heard for his piety. That means that Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. Have you ever heard somebody say, I really can't believe in a God who would do these things? I've come to God with my prayer. I poured my heart out before him, pleaded with him to do something for me, and he did not do it. I will not serve a God like that. People do that all the time. They do that all the time. Jesus didn't. Jesus poured his heart out before the Father, and he knows what it means to be told no, because the Father's will is more important than what he wanted at the time. Folks, that's something that we need to grow in and learn. When Martin Luther, everybody knows Martin Luther is a great reformer. In 1542, he had a sweet little daughter that he called Lena. And Lena was dying of the plague. And Martin Luther held her in his arm. He was a very strong family man. Loved his children very, very dearly. And he said to his little daughter as she was in his arms and he was crying his eyes out, Would you like to stay here with your father, my dear little daughter? Or would you like to to go to your father up yonder? And the little girl said, Darling father, as God wills. And as he held her in his arms, she died. And she said, and at at her graveside, as they lowered her casket, he said, Darling Lena, you will rise and shine like a star, yea, like the sun. I am happy in spirit, but my flesh is sorrowful. And I'll not be content... The parting grieves me beyond measure. I have sent a saint to heaven. Martin Luther, one of the most significant figures in all of Christendom, pleaded with God to save his little daughter's life, and she died. And what did he do? He said, I can't serve a God like that. No, not at all. He commended his daughter to Christ, to the grave, and he went on to serve his Lord faithfully. Does Jesus understand that kind of stuff? Does he understand it when you cried your eyes out and and you you pour your heart out and it isn't going the way you hoped it would? Does he understand that? He's been there, folks. And the greatest of Christians have been there at times. Verse 8, he moves on. He says this, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. You know, we learn, we learn sometimes from our mistakes. Jesus learned from his, his successes. He suffered because he obeyed, not because he didn't obey. What a powerful test. He knows what it means to do right and suffer because of it. 
And thirdly, verse 9, he says this, And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obeyed him the source of eternal salvation. The word perfect means is, is the Greek word that means that it carries out its intended purpose. If I start my lawnmower up and it works and it mows grass, it is perfect in the sense that it's done, it's done what it's supposed to do. Jesus came to do what he was supposed to do, die for our sins so that he might be what? The source of our eternal salvation. And so he is perfect. Does he understand us? Has he been there? Can he deal with us with gentleness and tenderness and also directness as we need that? He can because he has been there. He is our great high priest. He invites us to come to him and bring our burdens to him because he is gentle and lowly of heart and he will hear. When I was thinking about what I wanted to do with my life as a teenager, I thought math would be a good thing. So I went to college with math. And the thing I like about math the most, I kind of like that. My mind kind of works that way. But what I kind of liked also is in most of the textbooks I used going through high school and college, the answers were in the back of the book. Remember that? Uh, and so when I did my, my problems, I came back and looked at the back of the book. I found out whether or not I was right. And that really comforted me when I was right. And then I went back and learned if I was wrong. I really liked the answers in the back of the book. I really did. We have here in our passage of Scripture one who has the answers to every issue of life, both now and eternity, and he welcomes you to come to him with open arms, and he receives you with gentleness and kindness and love because he is our great high priest, now and forevermore. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for the Jesus Christ, the great high priest. Lord, we don't get all this stuff about Melchizedek yet, but we'll get there. And we're thankful that you have put this in your word for us to know and understand. We pray in Jesus' holy and righteous name. Amen.